You're entering Outer Brightness. Hey Fireflies, this week we will be discussing a topic with a big scary name, hermeneutics. No, we aren't talking about the monsters. According to D.A. Carson, hermeneutics can be simply defined as the art and science of interpretation. Biblical, biblical hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting the Bible. And this is from Carson, must I learn how to interpret the Bible. When it comes to understanding what a text says, it is unavoidable that we are interpreting it. As much as we talk about there being a quote, literal understanding of a text, Two people may read something, quote, literally, yet can arrive at different understandings. This is partially due to having multiple lenses through which we read and interpret it. First, we read the words on our page. Our brains then interpret the words and form images and ideas in our minds based on our personal experiences, biases, education, etc. And then we use our higher functions and reasoning to take those thoughts and ideas and form conclusions based on that information. So how do we reach a consensus on understanding what a text says when there are so many factors and lenses for the interpretation of words on a page, this is the task of hermeneutics, and specifically biblical hermeneutics is the topic of our discussion today. We hope it will be an exciting and educational dive into how we have learned as post-Latter-day Saints to read and understand the Bible consistently. We will also address how we as Christians deal with differences in some interpretations of Scripture. So we are Matthew the Nuclear Calvinist and the Apostate Paul. Let's get into it. So Paul... When you were a Latter-day Saint, how were the Bible and other Latter-day Saint scriptures taught to you in various classes, quorums, groups, etc.? So like, how did you read them? How did you talk about them and study from them? I think the first time I think that most Latter-day Saint young people start to encounter their scriptures on a consistent basis is when they begin a seminary or release time when they're a freshman in high school. In, in seminary, you, you are actually encouraged to read through uh, the whole of the text. But again, you, you're going to focus in on uh, some narrative stories. If you're reading through the Old Testament, you're not going to get into a whole lot of depth on understanding what, you know, what passages have meant from a, on a historical theology kind of perspective. You're not going to get the, um, the, the in-depth Christian uh, understanding of it. There's a large focus on the narrative and then on LDS theology. And when I was in seminary, we had a scripture mass, a set of scripture mastery passages for each of the the four books in the uh, LDS, uh, what LDS call the standard works, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, so we would, we were given a little bookmark, a little plastic bookmark that had the list of scriptures that we were supposed to memorize. Um, and there, you know, occasionally you would have uh, tests uh, in seminary to prove that you were memorizing the scripture mastery passages, but you were encouraged on your own to do a full reading of, uh, of the book you were studying in seminary, whether that was the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, uh, or Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. So then uh, I think as you get older and, and become an adult, 
in the church. You start attending, uh, at least back in my day when, when church was still three hours, I understand it's two hours now, but back in my day in the LDS church, when it was three hours, you would attend uh, Sunday school and you would attend um, priesthood quorum or relief society if you were a female. Um, and in those, in those classes, uh, there's, there's lesson manuals. Sunday school for adults uh, is called gospel doctrine. And you, you'll often hear Latter-day Saints kind of brag that, yeah, we study each of the, each of our books of scripture once every four years. And they, they kind of make that as a brag, like we really know our stuff because uh, we're studying through the, the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, uh, the whole Book of Mormon and the whole Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price every four years. Um, but in reality, you're not really studying through the whole of them. The lesson manuals for gospel doctrine, uh, again, they focus on narrative stories. You're going to talk about the story of Abraham and Isaac. If you're going through the Old Testament, you're going to talk about the story of David and Bathsheba. You know, you're, you're going to focus on some narrative stories to keep people's interest. And then uh, certain passages that support Mormon doctrine are emphasized. And in gospel doctrine, you get as an adult, at least you used to, I don't know if, how it is today, but speaking to how it used to be 10 years ago, uh, 11 years ago now, you used to get a pamphlet, a student pamphlet a guide to help you uh, study through and prepare for each week's lesson. And those, those student guides, they didn't, if you were, if you were to follow that student guide strictly, um, you would not be instructed to read the full text of scripture. They would focus on certain passages, again, narrative passages, and then certain doctrinal passages that Latter-day Saints use to support uh, their doctrine. And so unless you were on your own deciding to be, deciding not to be a lazy learner, uh, you wouldn't read through <laughs> through uh, the whole Old Testament or the whole New Testament. I don't know what percentage of it you would get, but it's not the whole thing. Does that help with what you were asking, Matthew? Is that kind of what you were going for? Yeah, that was really great. We really went into a lot of depth on that, and I agree. That's pretty much my experience, too. It seemed like, in general, it was either topically based, so you'd mm -hmm. be talking about a specific doctrine or a specific idea, or you'd be talking about a set of chapters in the one of the books of scripture, old, old New Testament, Book of Mormon Doctrine and Covenants, or Pearl Great Price. And then you would kind of just glance through most of it and just pick up parts here and there or do scripture mastery. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I was looking for. So I appreciate it. And so when we're studying these things uh, as Latter-day Saints, mu much of it is focused on topics. So they'll bounce from passage to passage, or they'll study this part here, and then they'll bounce to another one there. Uh, so the next thing I want to move on to is, does the LDS Church teach its membership how to read and interpret scripture? And so I'll kind of give my answer. And I think it doesn't really do that. It kind of has sort of like how a lot of modern evangelicals kind of study the Bible, where it's like when you have a Bible study, they'll pick a passage or they'll pick something and then they'll read it out loud. And then they'll kind of go along around to everybody around the table and say, okay, well, what do you think this means? So it's kind of a more subjective understanding of scripture. And it's not really in-depth understanding of the various ways of how to interpret scripture itself, which are which I think are important. And that's why we were talking about it on this episode. So I don't think it, it really even explicitly, I don't think the church explicitly teaches how to interpret scripture. It's kind of like you read it and then you assume that the face value understanding of the text is the, the correct one. So would you agree with that or would you give a different understanding. 
Yeah, I, lar- I largely agree. Um, I, w- I would probably say also, though, that um, the LDS Church does teach its membership how to interpret Scripture, um, but it doesn't teach them explicitly how to. Uh, it's kind of more you pick it up as you go along in these topical lessons. Um, so, and I, and I would say that the way they teach you to interpret Scripture is to interpret Scripture in light of the teachings of their prophets and apostles and, uh, and, or the teachings of uh, additional Mormon books of scripture. Um, So, and the way that's done is that in these topical lessons, um, say you're studying the topic of faith, uh, you will, the the lesson manual will instruct the teacher to uh, have a student uh, read from a passage of scripture that touches on faith. Maybe you'll read through uh, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, right? And then, or, or a portion of it. And then uh, there'll be a question, what is faith? And then, you know, the class will be asked to kind of answer and talk about that question. And then there's a bunch of quotes from Latter-day Saint general authorities talking about what faith is. And so the, the kind of, lesson that's taught by osmosis and kind of repetition is uh, the prophets and apostles are going to tell you what to think and, be- and how to think and believe about what scripture says. And so you kind of come to that understanding uh, through guidance that I think is uh, uh, deliberate, um, but I don't think they explicitly teach that necessarily. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, that's I, I agree with you that they do understand scripture in light of the teachings of the church or the teachings of their leadership. But like you said, it's implicit. So it's kind of almost like they, the way that I was, that I was trying to explain it, but didn't really make sense or it didn't really come out the way I was hoping is that by reading a, a passage with all of this in your mind, already understood all the teachings from the church and from the book of Mormon and doctrine and covenants. When you read a passage, you're already looking through that lens. And so when you read it, you say, Oh, okay, that's, that's what I already agree with, or it already fits with what I understand rather than critically under, you know, trying to look at the text, just at what the text says. And so you read it, you read first uh, Corinthians 15, 29, I think is a reference that talks about baptism for the dead. Oh, Paul's teaching baptism for the dead. And then it brings in all this association with the temple and salvation for the dead and all that. So it's, it's kind of like they're, they're prepping you, they're, they're front loading with a lot of information so that when you see certain words or ideas, they automatically pop in from your memory and then, so then they'll assume that, oh, that's what the text is saying. It's agreeing with what I've already learned. So that's kind of what I was trying to explain. I didn't do a very good job with that. No, I think I think you did a fine job. Um, I want to ask you a question about this, though. Uh, sure. Something I was thinking about earlier today. Um, so the, the, the LDS Church kind of revamped its scriptures, I think, at the end of the 1970s um, and uh, included uh, what we used to know of as the Bible dictionary, the topical guide, there were a bunch of study aids added, um, footnotes uh, that kind of cross-reference across all of the four standard works. Uh, And then they also included uh, footnotes that would tell you what certain Greek words, certain uh, words uh, in Greek meant, right? So these footnotes were added to the King James Bible. Um, I'm curious, did you ever have a in the classes you were in, like a teacher refer to those Greek footnotes or talk about them in any way? To my memory, no. I do remember a discussion I did have with my mission president, my mission once, where we were, we were having one of our personal interviews. And he pointed to the passage in, 
I forget which gospel it is. It might be Matthew where the woman touches the, the edge of Christ's robe and uh, because she, she had the, the issue with blood and so she wanted healing. So she approached him and touched him. And Jesus said that he felt that in the King James Version says he felt the power came out of me or came from me. And then there is a little footnote there that says like, or another translation of that is virtue, right? I mean, no, it's the opposite. It's virtue in the text, I think, and power is in the footnote. And so then my mission president made that connection to say that virtue is power. So even though in reality, really the translation just means power. It's not talking about virtue. It's just, you know, Christ felt that strength or energy was leading. Oh, wow. So that's only, that's only instance I can really think of where that was used. But now that I think back on it, I was like, well, that wasn't quite, <laughs> quite how that you should use that. Yeah, I, yeah, for sure. And I, I do remember a few instances, you know, where, where someone like an elders quorum might ask what, you know, if we were looking at a passage and they happened to glance down at their footnotes, they might ask the question, okay, what, what are we supposed to do with this Greek footnote? It says, it means, says this word can also be translated as this other thing. And nobody really ever knew what to do with that. <laughs> I just, I just find it interesting that the, the LDS church put all of that work into putting those Greek footnotes in there um, and didn't give their instructors really any guidance into how to, how to uh, make use of that. Yeah. That is something to think about because I, th- I think a Latter-day Saint ideas on the Bible are starting to shift where you'll see more and more Latter-day Saints quoting from different translations of the Bible mm-hmm. instead of just the King James. Whereas before it's like, well, the King James is the only one that we can really trust and the other ones are kind of corrupted or the other ones are not so trustworthy, but it seems like that's shifting now. So, so maybe they will be more trained or more willing to use those footnotes in the future. Yeah. It's interesting. I was, I was listening to one of Jeremy Howard's podcasts the other day. Um, it was one of their bonus uh, podcasts from the do theology podcast. And he was, he had gone to Kansas to present uh, some information about Mormonism uh, to a church there at a conference and uh, I know our Latter-day Saint listeners are going to kill me for pointing that out because they're always like, ah, you, your pastors preach against Mormonism. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's conferences, right? And and I've, I've listened to Jeffrey R. Holland uh, preach against the Trinity. So uh, it goes both ways. But um, anyway, Jeremy made the point about, you know, the King James Bible being the one that the Latter-day Saints use. Um, and he said that, you know, uh, if they wanted to use... Um, and, and I'm going to butcher it because I, I don't, uh, I'm not uh, as familiar as I should be with who who owns the copyright on each of the Bible translations. Is it Zondervan that has the NIV? Um, yeah, Zondervan has an NIV. Yeah, yeah. For sure. So that. that's the point Jeremy made is that if they wanted to use the NIV, they would have to get permission from Zondervan to make the uh, changes that they made uh, to the KJV. But they don't have to do that with the KJV because it's in um, it's in the public domain, at least that version of it that they use. So. Um, he was basically making the point that that they wouldn't really be able to use any other biblical version, Bible version as their their official version because no Christian publisher would allow them to do it. Yeah, I remember years ago they made their own Spanish revision mm-hmm. of the of, of an, a pre-existing Spanish version that kind of already existed. It's, I remember them making a modified version of that, and I was like, oh great, maybe they'll do that with the the French version. And I was hoping for that, but it never came out. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if they did that for that reason. You know, maybe yeah. the Spanish version of whatever text they're using wasn't in the public domain. I don't know. Mm. It's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, okay. So when we were switching now to when we were transitioning from the ALDS church to where we are now. So when we were questioning and uh, 
when we led our way out of the church. Uh, so during this transition period, did your reading interpretation of the Bible change over time or did it stay relatively the same? Uh, yeah, it definitely changed. Um, so I, I've mentioned before that as a, as a Latter-day Saint missionary, I read, I made it my kind of my goal to read through each of the standard works in full. Um, so I read through all four while I was on my mission. Um, and then after my mission, uh, I wanted to keep that up, but my focus was more so on the Book of Mormon uh, and reading that as many times as I could um, uh, because of the Latter-day Saint. That's kind of the uh, the crowning scripture uh, in, in the way that you view it. Um, so when I was leaving the LDS church, uh, I really wanted to dig into the Bible and um, kind of ironically, I guess, I, I had gone... While I was still a Latter-day Saint, I had gone to um, a ward, uh, I guess they called it a yard sale maybe, or a, yard, a, a ward um, uh, parking lot sale. Or, it was held in the cultural hall at, at uh, the, the LDS ward where we attended, and everybody kind of brought their stuff that they wanted to sell and uh, bought and sold to whoever wanted to come. So I had gone there, and and somebody had brought this book um, by, I think, I think he's... I don't know if he's Australian, but I think his ministry was in Australia. Uh, his name's Jay Sidlow Baxter. Um, and he wrote this, this pretty big volume uh, of commentary on the Bible called explore the book and uh, working. You know, I started reading through uh, my KJV <laughs> at that time um, because I wasn't yet really to, ready to venture out into other versions um, other translations. Uh, so I started reading through my KJV and using explore the book as kind of like a guide. Um, and he, uh, he presents uh, study guides on each chapter uh, of the Bible and uh, does some, some exegesis as well within his study guides. And, and by exegesis, for those who aren't familiar with that term, the, the idea there is to allow the text of scripture uh, or I'll allow the meaning of the text of scripture to be read out of the text of scripture uh, rather than uh, interpreting scripture in light of your own uh, biases and presuppositions, which would be eisegesis or reading your own uh, thoughts and views into the scripture. Um, so the difference is uh, between the question, what does this passage mean? And what does this passage mean to me? <laughs> Uh, what does this passage mean is restricted to what did the author intend uh, to convey when they wrote? Uh, what does this passage mean to me can be anything I want it to be. <laughs> and so um, kind of in encountering J. Sidlow Baxter doing some exegesis within his writings and reading through that and realizing that there was a different way of uh, looking at scripture than I had looked at before. I When I was first doing that back in, uh, you know, late 2009, early 2010, I didn't have uh, the, the theological uh, or biblical studies understanding that I do now to, to really see what uh, Baxter was doing. I could just tell that it was very different than what I had encountered before. And so you would say that that's one of them. So would you say you still interpret scripture the way that you were studying from him? Or would you say it kind of changed since then? Or, you know, do you, do you feel like he was still pretty instrumental in how you interpret scripture now? He was instrumental because, yeah, and it, it, he was instrumental because um, for, for two reasons, one, the exegesis, but two, uh, the, the 
the commentary on each chapter of the Bible. He wasn't leaving anything out. Like, like we talked about earlier with some of the LDS study guides with, with Baxter, nothing was left out. I mean, it's like 800 pages long, his, his book, you know, and um, he's, he's given you everything. Uh, and there were, you know, I, I read through the Bible as a whole, as an LDS missionary. Um, but there are things you don't and can't see as a Latter-day Saint, even if you're reading through the entire text. Um, and even if you do slow down and go, wait, what, wait, that doesn't fit with my theology. When you read over a passage, uh, you, you get kind of get the cognitive dissonance set in where you're like, I'm not going to allow myself to really think about that. I'm just going to keep on going until I find one of the smoother passages that works with my theology. Um, so, uh, yeah, you, you either see some of that stuff and, and ignore it, or you just don't see it at all because you're so focused on looking for your theology, uh, in the Bible. Um, and I did, I did that a lot as a Latter-day Saint, looking for my theology, uh, in the scripture rather than, um, rather than interpreting scripture in the way that it means. And I, I'll give you a quick uh, example of that. Um, there's a passage in the Book of Mormon, and I'd, I'd have to look it up to, to see exactly what it is, uh, which passage it is. Um, and I won't do that now, but for the sake of time, but I'll just say kind of to give you the gist of what the passage says. It's talking about uh, the writing of the Nephite records and that out of the writing of the books, out of the writing of these books, these records, the world would be judged, right? Um, is kind of the gist of the passage. I was on my mission um, <clears throat> and there was a missionary uh, who was, who had become kind of a friend of mine in the MTC. And we didn't, we never served kind of in the same uh, area uh, much while we were on our missions. We were always in different cities uh, well, not always. There was one time when, when I was in Budapest and he was also in Budapest, but different parts of the city. So we would occasionally see each other on P, on P day, preparation day. But um, for the most part, we were in different cities. And this missionary had gotten into some trouble uh, out in one of the smaller towns where he and, and uh, three other missionaries were serving. Uh, they had um, had a pool party with uh, some of the uh, teenage uh young women uh, in the branch there. And uh, of course, for missionaries, swimming is uh, uh, forbidden. <laughs> and uh, so is uh, fraternizing with uh, females. So it was kind of a big deal. Um, all of the missionaries were transferred out of that area to other areas of the mission. And uh, he had called me to talk about it um, and, you know, kind of express his regrets uh, and I, you know, I got off the phone call with him late one night and I was feeling pretty, uh, concerned about him, you know, just wanted to make sure he was okay. You know, as I was, he was, he was upset about the whole situation and, um, I went and, you know, started praying and, and reading through the book of Mormon. And I came across that passage and I was like, wow, that's awesome. Out of the books that are written, the world shall be judged. So then I started writing in my journal about how good this elder was and I, how good I knew him to be. He was a good guy. You know, um, he got caught up with some elders who got him into trouble, you know, cause I was, I was like, Oh, out of the books that are written, the world shall be judged. So the record I make 
is going to impact how God judges this, this elder, this missionary. You know what I mean? Hmm, and that's, that sounds, that sounds pretty naive, but that's, that's eisegesis in a nutshell, right? That's, that's looking at the text and being, and bringing your own uh, emotions, your own thoughts, your own uh, experience to it and making it mean something to you rather than understanding what the text should mean from what the author intended it to mean. Yeah. Another, thank you for that story. That's another classic example that's abused even by Christians is the Philippians passage that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, you know, that's just been abused and used for, you know, passing tests and eating a, a, a five pound burrito or whatever, you know, <laughs> when they when in the, in the passage, it's talking about persecution, you know, so yep. it's not yep. talking about uh, doing whatever, <laughs> you know, not, it's not talking able- about you becoming all powerful <laughs> to yeah. do whatever you want to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So thank you for that. So, yeah. Um, I would agree. I would, I would also say that the way I understand and read scripture is different from when I was a Latter-day Saint. And I think one of the most instrumental books to help me was a book that I read shortly after starting to either consider or actually start attending a Reformed uh, church. I believe it was in 2017. So yeah, that was when I started attending. There's a book called Getting the Garden Right by Richard Barcelos. And I, and I recommend it all the time to people to read. It's a really great book. It, it uh, kind of talks about the, the doctrine of creation and uh, the covenant of works and covenant of grace. And we've talked about that with uh, uh, Ben Hank and uh, Darren Caldwell in our episode on uh, covenant theology and what about, or what is covenants. So I recommend that episode. And so I mentioned in, in that, and that just really opened my eyes to understanding uh, how to understand and think covenantally, you know, reading the scriptures in terms of how God relates to mankind in terms of covenants, but also just interpretation of scripture, because he starts off in that book by saying, look, you know, we need to interpret scripture consistently. We can't just, like you said, read a passage and put our own emotions, our own thoughts into it. We have to understand and pull out what it actually wants us to understand. And so it talks about several uh, reformed hermeneutics principles that we'll get into in the full discussion. And that just helped me to understand, okay, yeah, there are a set of rules that can help us to read scripture and understand it the way that it was intended to be understood and to in- interpret it consistently rather than just reading it as a big jumbled pile of books written by fallible men, which is how a lot of critical scholars read the Bible. So, yeah. So I, I would say that uh, from the perspective from now to as Leonard is saying, I think I try to look at the Bible more critically, although you'll never be able to completely overcome your own biases and your own, um, you know, your own experiences when you're reading the scriptures, but we should at least be conscious of them and try to interpret the Bible regardless of, of our experiences and our biases to try to interpret what God wants us to really know rather than putting what we want, what we feel like we want to know into the text. We should be willing to be molded and changed by what the text says. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Very good points. Um, And just to kind of piggyback off of that, did you, do you think that as a Latter-day Saint um, that you were taught to read scripture in a way that, uh, the question is kind of always what what does this mean to me? Yeah, or or how does this how does this confirm the teachings of the restoration or something mm-hmm. like that? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's I have a couple of thoughts on that. There's a passage, I know we're kind of going back to this to the second question, but it, it just kind of the thought struck me. Um, there's a passage in the Book of Mormon, it's early on in the Book of Mormon. I think it's supposed to be Nephi writing, right? And it says that they reckoned all the scriptures unto themselves. 
Are you familiar? Remember that passage? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm trying. Where to they recon- where not reckon they reconciled all the scriptures unto themselves, um, and that passage is shared with you quite often as a Latter Day Saint. And in in lessons, so one one of the things about uh, Latter Day Saint teaching and culture that that some Christians may not be familiar with uh, who have never been Latter Day Saints is that. Um, in, uh, in Sunday school and priesthood quorums and, and relief society, the teachers are called from among the lay members of, of the congregation. Um, and that's not always the case in Christian churches. Often you might have elders who are teaching um, those court, those classes. Um, or if, or if you do have uh, someone who's more of a volunteer, uh, it's someone who has some training and teaching often, uh, at least from my experience. Um with Latter-day Saints, that's not the case. Uh, someone can be called to teach uh, gospel doctrine, uh, maybe because they're they're a good orator, maybe because they're a good teacher, they can keep a, a class's attention, um, but they don't have training in teaching necessarily. And that's especially true in elders quorum, where you're you're a <laughs> you're a, a either an elders quorum president or you're an uh, elders quorum. You're in the elders quorum presidency as a counselor. Um, and you're, you're just kind of designated as the instructor for the group. Um, and you, you have the lesson manual that you follow, but I think a lot of times, and and my wife mentioned this about relief society as well. A lot of times, because, because there's these instructors and teachers who don't really have a lot of training, uh, they will often fall back onto the question, what does this passage mean to you? Or what, what is this, what is whatever we've just read, whether it's a passage of scripture or a passage of uh, or a quote from a general authority, what does it mean to you? Uh, and there's also the culture within the LDS faith that um, testimony is really, really important. Your own personal testimony. Uh, once a month, there's there's fast and testimony meeting where, where members of the congregation are encouraged to stand up uh, during the main uh, service uh, on Sunday and, and share their own testimony. Um, and that is very personal. It's very uh, subjective um, as to what is shared. And so that carries over into those classes. So when the question is asked, what does this mean to you? It's wide open for whoever to uh, say what they think it means or how it's impacted them. Um, and you can get far astray of what the intent of the writing actually is in those classes. So just another way that that kind of LDS culture kind of teaches you uh, Im- implicitly to interpret scripture in light of yourself. Um, and I think that passage from the Book of Mormon, we reconciled all the scriptures unto ourselves, uh, is another another passage that kind of uh, invites you to do that. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. And it, I think it's because, yeah, they're, they're so focused on application that it's almost like th- that's kind of immediately where they skip to. Mm. They don't skip, you know, we'll talk about the different steps of understanding a passage, but it's like, they want to skip all of those and say, okay, well, how does it apply to us? You know, they just mm-hmm. want to get straight to the, to the final destination. Right. And it's not that that's bad in and of itself, but, but first you need to understand what the principle is being taught here and, you know, like what the background is and the culture and then the circumstances themselves, and then drawing out the principles from the text rather than just saying immediate, going immediately to application, because then you can get, you know, uh, R.C. Sproul himself said, in a series, I forget which one, he said that there's only one true meaning of a text in terms of what the what the author is actually trying to convey. 
but the way that that could be applied is many different ways. And so, um, you know, depending on circumstances, depending on, you know, the, the, the principle has, it has applications to a lot of different things, but the way the text is meant to be read and understood is only really one way, right. but it seems like the way you were describing and the way that I also experienced, it's like, well, there isn't really a single way. There's many different ways. Um, and as long as you're within the barriers of, you know, these boundaries of what the LDS church teaches, you can kind of take what you want. You can interpret it however you like. And, um, you're not really seeking after one single understanding. You're kind of, you're kind of have some leeway there, I guess. Yeah. And if you don't, um, if you skip straight to application and you don't have a solid understanding of, of what the text is meant to convey, um, then, then you can have the idea that, you know, I can eat a five pound burrito through Christ that strengthens me. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. Some great thoughts. Uh, did you have anything else to add? All right. So moving on to our uh, fuller, longer discussion. Uh, let's see. So in the introduction, I quoted D.A. Carson who stated that biblical hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting the Bible. So first off, let's talk about why we think it's an art. So I have I, I have a kind of nebulous idea. So maybe, Paul, you can help me out with uh, <laughs> making it maybe more concrete. So why do you personally think it's an art? So it's an art because communication is flexible, right? Uh, words do have various meanings in various contexts. Um, and sometimes mechanical and rigid application of rules uh, can distort the meaning. Um, an example of that that I would give, and we'll, we'll get into talking a little bit more about literary genres later, but the Bible contains various literary genres. Um, and there are various ways of interpreting uh, each type of literary genre. Um, you interpret a parable uh, different than you interpret a narrative passage uh, that, that's historical, right? Uh, the passages and acts that talk about Luke and Paul uh, traveling from city to city, uh, Paul being imprisoned, Paul writing letters to churches, um, Paul traveling to Jerusalem to meet with uh, the Jerusalem council, right? Um, those, those passages are meant to be historical passages as an historical record of Paul's and Luke's traveling and preaching. Um, the parables of Jesus are not meant to be interpreted in the same way that those historical travels are. Um, there's, uh, you know, there, there, uh, two kind of differing schools of, uh, biblical interpretation early on in Christianity, the, uh, Alexandrian and Antiochian school, um, the Antiochian school uh, kind of took lots of things as um, metaphorical. So you can, um, and I was listening to a podcast the other day uh, about uh, Mary and the question being debated was, was Mary sinless? I don't know if you caught that uh, uh, gospel truth debate or not, Matthew, but um it was a, a Roman Catholic and a, and a Protestant debating was Mary sinless. And the Roman Catholic was uh, presenting uh, some views from early uh, Christian interpreters from the Antiochian school of biblical interpretation. And so uh, he was making the case that, oh, Mary is like the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so you have a historical figure, Mary, who becomes kind of like a metaphor, uh, and so, uh, and has metaphorical uh, 
a metaphorical approach to the, the, that school had a metaphorical approach to scripture. So, um, you know, the, the application then of that understanding then becomes, oh, Mary was sinless because she bore the son of God and she was, she was holy like the Ark of the Covenant, right? Um, so that's, that's, that's one way of interpreting scripture. Um, but is that being uh, true to the original meaning of any passage about Mary is the question that you kind of have to ask there. And that, that gets into the genres. So, but yeah, art, art, because it's, because communication is flexible in that way. Um, but then uh, the other part of the other side of that coin is uh, why is it, why does DA Carson say it's also a science uh, science because it has rules uh, that can be classified in an orderly system, right? There's rules of syntax uh, there's ways of understanding different literary genres, et cetera, that make it uh, a science as well as an art. Yeah, that's great. That's a really great summary. I was I was thinking of it in terms of like art, in terms of like a painting, you know, and if we were, if it was just solely an art, well, you could take that paint, you could take the same paintbrushes and ink or whatever it is you're using to create your art and you can make whatever you want. You know, there's no real rules, um, but it's also a science because we, we have certain presuppositions about scripture and, and they're not just presuppositions that we add to the text, but scripture itself says that it's God breathed and that it's true. And so we have to understand scripture in light of those facts. And we have to understand that we can't just, we can't just, you know, have a, have an acid trip and just, you know, you know, stare into the pages of scripture and be like, well, you know, I think this is talking about that. Or I think it's like, you know, there are rules, but, uh, but there is a certain level of flexibility, like you said. There's a lot of cultural understandings that we may, may not be privy to entirely. Like I think we we are learning more and more about these ancient cultures as we find more and more uh, documents and artifacts, and we're learning and we're we're getting access to more scientific information about these cultures. We're starting to understand, uh, kind of pull that uh, that veil away to see, okay, here's how they might have understand might have understood this text, and there's still debate on per- perhaps different aspects of scripture. So yeah, there is. There is a lot of it that we that we just don't have a perfect, you know, precise, uh, clear understanding of what it, what maybe a particular passage says exactly. Um, so there is a lot of room there for growth. There's a room room there for maybe some even creativity if you want to think of it that way. Like, okay, put yourself in the mind of a Jewish person in this in this part of the world at that time and, and place. How might they understand it? So there is kind of a little bit of a creativity there involved as well. Uh, so, uh, moving on. So we've, we've talked about the word exegesis and it comes from a Greek word, which basically means to X, you know, like when you think of exit from a building, you know, it's to pull something out. So exegesis is to pull out the meaning of a text. It's reading a text and understanding what it's trying to say. So when we're performing exegesis of the Bible, what are some basic do's or don'ts to a consistent reading and understanding of scripture? We've already talked about, uh, I'll give a couple. We've already talked about how exegesis is trying to pull in or pull out a reading from scripture rather than shoving in a reading into scripture. So yeah, the burrito idea from uh, through Christ, all, you know, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's, it's going in and understanding the context of the, the text, you know, what the surrounding passage is talking about, what is the speaker talking about and, and trying to pull that out. Another don't uh, is to just not, we should try not to just pick a single phrase out of the context and just say, okay, well, I think it means this context is very important. Um, 
And I think that's, that's one thing that I felt like I was lacking when I was training as a, a lottery saint. I felt like sometimes in seminary, they might give you a little bit of background for a particular passage or chapter, but we didn't spend like a lot of time on that. It was kind of like, well, yeah, the writer is, is Paul. He's writing to the Colossians, you know, um, he's going to be talking about this and it might have a small discussion, but there's really not in-depth, you know, context for, for all of those passages that, that you get in a lot of really solid exegetical uh, commentary or preaching. So those are just couples that I have off the top of my head. So how about you, Paul? What are some do's or don'ts when uh, trying to interpret or pull out uh, the meaning of scripture? Yeah, I think you gave some really good ones there. Um, to to add to that, um, I, w- I would say, you know, that, um, and, and not everybody has, you know, there's, there's scholarly interpretation of scripture and then there's lay interpretation of scripture, right? Um, and, and uh, you know, just your everyday Christian uh, relies a lot on commentaries written by others. Um, and we talked earlier about kind of how Latter-day Saints uh, go about teaching in classes. You know, there's maybe a passage of scripture and then uh, lots of pass- lots of quotes from general authorities or from uh, other parts of uh, Latter-day Saint uh, unique scripture that, that kind of gives you this idea of this is what this biblical passage should, should mean. It should be an interpret in, in light of the, all this other stuff, right? Um, Christians can fall into a similar uh, danger zone, I think, uh, when it comes to commentaries, um, because uh, there, there's steps to, to exegesis and steps to hermeneutics, right? Uh, steps that you go through. Um, so when I was in, in uh, Christian seminary, the book that we used uh, was called uh, Hermeneutics. It was by uh, Verkler and Ayo are the two authors. And, um, you know, they say this about exegesis, that uh, in the order of operations for scholarly biblical interpretation, exegesis follows a study of canonicity, textual criticism, and historical criticism. So there's, uh, there's other steps that you kind of go through before asking the question, okay, what is the meaning of this text, right? Um, <clears throat> and uh, in in kind of uh, working through that on your own, um, there's various uh, steps that you go through uh, in hermeneutics, right? There's historical cultural analysis, which you were kind of touching on, Matthew. What what was the the overall historical milieu in which this this uh, passage uh, or book of scripture was written? Um, who's the author? Uh, what what uh, was believed by the the readers or the hearers of this passage of scripture? Um, what would they have understood from it? That kind of those kind of questions, contextual analysis. How does it fit within the overall argument that the author is making? If you're looking at a single passage, um, what uh, what are the um, what are the other related? Uh, statements or or doctrinal arguments that the author is making that that or makes elsewhere and others other of that same author's writings that uh, you could use to try to understand uh, what is being said in a particular particularly difficult passage. Uh, then there's lexical syntactical analysis. What do the words mean that are being used? Are there other possible meanings that um, these words hold that? are different from the, uh, the meaning that I understand on face value that may play in here. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about that earlier with the, the Greek footnotes and the LDS scriptures, you know, this, this Greek word can also mean 
this other thing. Uh, that's what you're doing with lexical syntactical analysis. Um, and then there's theological analysis, uh, looking at, um, like I said before, what, what the original hearers or what the, the writer uh, believed, what, what was their overall theological outlook. Um, once you've kind of gone through all of that, uh, then you're at the point of uh, asking the question, okay, what does this passage mean? Right. You're, you've, you've set yourself up with some tools to try to understand what the passage means uh, in context. Um, and then you then you can kind of look at how do I read out from this passage, what the author intended, which is the ultimate goal uh, of hermeneutics. Um, because the, uh, the Christian view of scripture is that it, it was breathed out by God, right? Uh, that comes from the writings of Paul, Theopneustas. It was breathed out by God. And so uh, the, the ultimate goal is to understand what God intends to convey through the writing to his people. Um, and so the last, the last step in hermeneutics is to then, once you have done all those other things, historical cultural analysis, you've done your best to try to understand what, uh, what context this was written in, uh, what the words mean, what the writer believed theologically uh, or understood theologically, uh, then you've gone the further step and said, okay, what do I think this passage means based on all of that work? Then the final step is to compare you, what you understand with other interpreters. Um, Latter-day Saints kind of, they skip to that very last step, right? Uh, here's this passage. And then how is it used in, or how is it used or interpreted by other Latter-day Saint scripture and Latter-day Saint general authorities? So they skip right past any kind of uh, cultural, historical, lexical, syntactical, theological analysis and go straight to what do the interpreters say, right? Um, and like I, like I was saying when I started this, uh, this section is that Christians can fall into that same trap with commentaries. They skip over, uh, uh, if, if it's a good commentary, you'll have those steps walked through for you. <laughs> but, um, you know, if it's not, uh, you can fall into the trap of, of just kind of glomming onto what, uh, what one interpreter means or, or thinks a passage means, uh, and, and not really getting at what the passage actually means. You're just getting an interpreter's take on it. Yeah, that's a great point. I was going to say, I was going to ask you, uh, so how do Christians avoid that? But it seems like you kind of already answered that. You want to make sure that if you're reading from a commentary, that they do try to approach all these different aspects of interpreting the text. And sometimes I don't think it's necessarily bad to have a commentary that doesn't include all of those, as long as you go in understanding that that you may have a limited or biased view of the interpretation of the scripture uh, based on who wrote it. So sometimes I might want a Lutheran understanding of a, of a text, or I might want an Orthodox view of a text. Like I have an Orthodox study Bible. I have, Roman, I have several Roman Catholic study Bibles. And so sometimes I'll just be like, okay, well, I want to understand how someone else interprets this passage. And so I'll read their commentaries. And sometimes they don't do all that legwork. Sometimes they just give, you know, in particular, like Roman Catholic uh, commentaries, a lot of times will re reference like the catechisms, the Roman Catholic catechism, or uh, from different councils, different statements, rather than go through all that, do all the legwork, like you said, of, of the background and, and the lexical syntactical analysis and all that. So as, uh, they can be of value. They're not completely worthless, but we have to be uh, conscientious of what kind of information they're providing. And if it's 
if if they've given you given you as the reader all of the understanding and, and uh, data in order to come to a conclusion yourself. Um, commentaries are very valuable, but I think it's also great that we understand how to use commentaries because yeah, like you said, sometimes we can just treat the commentaries as a second Bible. We just read it and take it for what it says and don't really analyze it critically. And that can be very bad. So we're not knocking on commentaries. Commentaries are great. I've got several commentaries that I read and reference. So did you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, no, just great points. Just be aware of um, what the, uh, what the theological backgrounds are of the authors of the commentaries that you're using. Um, you know, I have, I have, uh, I'm like you, Matthew, I've got uh, Roman Catholic study Bible. I've got the Orthodox uh, Greek Orthodox study Bible. I've got all kinds of different study Bibles. I've got um, the ESV uh, theological study Bible, which is one of my favorites. Um, and it has, you know, as you read through the text of scripture, it has uh, various uh, theological uh, little articles uh, at the bottom of a, of a page. If there's a particular passage. So for example, at John one, one, it's, it's got a theological article at the bottom that talks about the logos and, and kind of what that means, but it's a systematic theology study Bible. So, you know, you have to understand that um, what you're getting there is systematics, right? Which should follow after uh, biblical theology, which is taking into account all of the, the steps of hermeneutics. Um, but, but you're getting a, a systematic theology uh, from a particular point of view, uh, in, in that case, uh, the Reformed point of view. So um, it's just important to understand what it is you're, what, what the tools are that you're using. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily um, uh, worthless or dangerous. Just be aware of what they are. Uh, if you're aware of what they are, you can read them for what they are and understand them for what they are. Uh, and uh, realize that in some places you may need to go and do some deeper digging uh, to see how did they arrive at a particular theological position. Um, so yeah, good points. Yeah, great. Thanks for that, Paul. I appreciate it. All right. So we've already talked about how genre, the, the genre of literature reading in the Bible when we're interpreting the Bible is very important. So part of reading and interpreting scripture is examining what kind or genre of literature the passage belongs to or the, or the book or the chapter. So there are various kinds of genres um, and, and it seems like different authors categorize them differently. So here are some of the categories that I've seen. There's historical or narrative. There's didactic or instructive, basically just teaching. Uh, there's prophetic. There's allegorical. There's poetic or wisdom literature like a uh, like um, Proverbs or uh, Ecclesiastes. And there's also apocalyptic literature. So parts of Daniel and Revelation in particular are apocalyptic in terms of they're talking about late end times, the end of the world, things like that. So we talked about that it's important, but maybe let's give a counterexample of why, what would happen if we were to misinterpret a passage or a book uh, for the wrong genre of literature. So what do you what do you think about that, Paul? What if you were to just completely take like a, a narrative book of scripture and think that it's all allegorical? What why would that be dangerous? So if you were to take a narrative passage of scripture and, and think that it was allegorical, um, it uh, it takes away some of the power uh, that that is found in in the narrative passages where you see uh, God acting to. Uh, sustain his people 
uh, to uh, watch over his people and care for his people. Um, if you take that and make it allegory, um, you're going to completely miss uh, the power of narrative. Um, and that, you know, the same kind of thing goes for misinterpreting other types of uh, literary genres within scripture. Um, there are, uh, you know, poetic and wisdom, there's poetic and wisdom literature, right? Um, and interpreting that rightly means uh, not necessarily interpreting it as historical, right? Poetic literature can uh, be epic. It can, it can uh, cover historical uh, events, but not all poetry does. Um, so it's important to understand the type of literary genre that you're looking at within, within the Bible. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I was thinking if, if you, you take something that actually happened and say, well, this is representative of certain truths or it's, it's meant to teach a lesson. Then, yeah, like you said, it, t- it robs it of some of its power. I mean, what if, what, what we were, if we were to take the, the sufferings of uh, Job uh, and just say, well, Job wasn't an actual person. It's just demonstrating how God blesses you if you're faithful or something like that. Then we, we couldn't really look to Job as like an actual person who is a strong, faithful man of God who went through all the suffering and, and yeah, he, he struggled, but in, in the end he was still faithful. So you lose, you lose the message there in terms of what is meant to convey, you know, it's, it's not just meant to teach truths. It's it, that's part of it, but it's also giving us, giving us an example of a man who, who was given the grace to, to stay strong, regardless of everything that was thrown at him, losing his children and suffering from boils and all these terrible things, but he still remained faithful. So we can still look to him as kind of like a, uh, an example uh, t- to bolster our faith when we're struggling with with the, you know, the problems that we have in life. So, I mean, there's there's all different kinds of uh, problems that you can run into. I, I remember in my mission, uh, I we tracked it into a Jehovah's Witness home, and uh, <laughs> felt kind of bad admitting it, but like we were just walking knocking on doors all day, had no success. You know, I think it was like a, a work day too, so we were exchanging between missionaries so i was with someone else i was with my normal companion and we just had no success and i was so tired and hungry and i was just like man like can we just talk to somebody and somebody let us in and we talked to him and he's like hey you know uh, i've got i've got some coke and cookies and you know if you guys want to talk for a little bit and i think we might have had another meeting coming up or something like that that we had to rush off to but i was like well you know maybe maybe something will happen out of this plus you know i'm kind of thirsty <laughs> so let's let's talk to this guy so we talked to him and yeah it turned it turned out that he was jehovah's witness and he showed us these books that he had and like, it was really weird. I remember seeing like books with pictures of the 10 headed dragon and, and stuff like that from revelation as if it were like a real dragon that's going to appear in the last days or something like that. And I just thought that was so weird. That's like, wait, you think there's like going to be a literal dragon that's going to happen. And maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe it was just an illustration, you know, for, for um, to kind of help you understand what the passage was saying. But if we take apocalyptic literature, which is highly symbolic, and it's it uses numbers and it uses colors and figures and animals to demonstrate or talk about certain truths, talk about certain events that will occur in history that could be precise moments in history or could occur over long periods of time. If you think that they're literal, you're going to come off with a completely wrong understanding of what the passage is trying to talk about. And so, and, uh, and, and even if you have the, the same values or same hermeneutics, there's still debate as to what these apocalyptic books of literature are trying to say, which is why you have different views of the end times in terms of the millennium. And so Christians have to kind of go with those passages with uh, 
broader willingness to be wrong about those passages. So they have to be, you know, kind of have a sort of humility in going to these apocalyptic passages. So there's a lot, there's a lot that needs to be done when you go to those specific passages versus something like in John chapter one, where it's very, very clearly talking about how Christ is God in, in the flesh and how he was the light of the world. And he's to save those who come into him in faith. And to them, he gave power to become children of God. So they're, they're much different passages of scripture and we shouldn't confuse, we should do our best to try not to confuse different genres of literature. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry that is, hangry that is, hangry that is. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. All right. So in, in addition to understanding what kind of literature passages in the Bible, there are different rules in reading and interpreting Scripture, and we've kind of alluded to them or referred to them uh, specifically. So here is a set of different rules that are different types of analysis. There's the historical cultural analysis. How does the passage fit into the context of history and in the culture in which it was written? There's the contextual analysis, how the passage fits in with the passages surrounding it. There's the grammatical and syntactical analysis. What is the grammar? What are the words used in the original language? What do they mean? What could they mean? And the theological analysis. So how do we take the context and grammatical syntax of the text and interpret this in terms of our beliefs? So um, maybe we don't need to go through all of them in depth, but maybe we should just go. Uh, I guess we can go one by one. I just didn't want to take a whole lot of time on this one. So uh, for the historical cultural analysis, we already talked a little bit about that. Uh, would you like to talk more about why that's important, why it's important to do the historical cultural analysis? Yeah. So um, like you said, historical cultural is, is looking at um, the historical milieu in which an author wrote um, in order to understand his illusions, references, purposes. So there's a... Uh, there's there's a time gap between us and the authors of the Bible. There's a cultural gap between us and the authors of the Bible. Um, so those those gaps have to be bridged somehow uh, in order for us to get to an understanding of what the author intended. Um, and the way you know historical cultural analysis helps you to bridge that gap. Um, contextual analysis is also it's kind of a substep in historical cultural analysis. Um, and it considers the relationship of a, of a passage to the entire passage surrounding it. So, you know, a lot of times you'll hear uh, Christians in discussions with Latter-day Saints say context, 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 um, because it's, it's not, uh, it's not a good practice to just take a rip a passage out of context of what the author is saying, um, because you might miss the meaning of that passage 
by uh, kind of myopically looking at that passage rather than looking at the whole uh, of the passage around it. Um, can you think of an example of, of, of a passage that Latter-day Saints do that with? Yeah, well, the one that they use a lot that is uh, Acts chapter 2, 38, 39. I hear that a lot to show that, well, you need to be baptized and confirmed uh, to receive forgiveness of sins. If you're not baptized and confirmed, you can't receive forgiveness of sins. And they'll, us- they'll usually point to that verse specifically. And never. I, I don't think I've ever once heard a lot of these really talk about the context of Acts chapter 2. That's Peter speaking. He's speaking to those who those Jews who had kind of uh, they, they may have either willingly or overtly consented to Christ's death, or they may have just been passive, or maybe they're people that, that are worried that because, you know, they came to the realization of their sins and that, that, uh, that Christ, their savior had, had died, you know? And so maybe they're a little bit worried that their day of salvation is passed and there's no salvation for them. And so there's all this contextual, interesting, great, awesome stuff that, that, is lost. It's not really divulged. And you just skip straight to chapter two, verse 38 and 39 and, and use as a proof text. And, and you miss a lot of, yeah, just a lot of the richness in the background and what's actually being taught there. And there's still maybe some debate even amongst Christians about exactly what's being said there. But at the same time, I think just, uh, just not even trying at all to do any of the contextual analysis is just really bad. It's, it's, it's just not being faithful or being respectful to the text. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. One, one that always springs to my mind is John five nineteen. Um, when I was kind of freshly out of, uh, the LDS church and kind of beginning, uh, to, uh, try to witness to Latter-day Saints, uh, as a Christian. Um, I remember talking to one guy online, uh, about, and about, uh, you know, LDS views of, of theosis and, and becoming gods themselves. And, and he used the, he, he threw this passage at me, um, in John five nineteen, which says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only that what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise. And he implied that what that passage means is that, the the son uh, is going through a mortal probation just like the father did because this is the way that Joseph Smith uses this passage in the King Follett sermon, and I remember kind of feeling like I was pulling my hair out with this guy. Like I kept asking him the question, you know, like so, are you saying that the the son can do nothing of his own accord that except that which he sees the father doing? So he does. He's doing exactly what the father did in his mortal probation, you know, that there's this whole other meaning that is kind of dropped into this passage. And, you know, if you zoom out uh, and look at the whole passage uh, of John five, what's being talked about there is the the healing at the pool on the Sabbath, right? Uh, Jesus heals a man at the pool of uh, Bethesda. And then he starts getting criticized by the Pharisees for having done so because he did a work on the Sabbath. Right. And so when Jesus is saying, you know, look, I, my father's working and I'm working until now uh, in verse 17. Uh, and then in 19 says, truly, truly, the son can do nothing of his own accord. He, he's making a case that, that the father is healing. Right. And he's healing also. He's not making a case that he's coming to earth to do exactly what 
the father did on his earth, you know, so like you can, you can really get lost in what a passage means. If you just myopically look at that one passage and don't zoom out to look at the context. And then there's also the Psalm 82 and John 10 reference, which says, this is not saying your law, you are God's. That's so often quoted to prove that we are either literal offspring of God or that we can become gods. And so, yeah, that's, uh, and, and we've even talked about how we have different understandings of that passage too, Psalm 82, but, but both, both of us in the various Christian understandings I've, under, I've read don't come to the same conclusion the Latter-day Saints do. So even, even if we do disagree, even if we might not come positively to the same understanding of a text, we can all, we can rule out what it doesn't say by trying to do, you know, our due diligence and doing our homework to understand the text, what it's trying to, to tell us. Uh, what about the grammatical and syntactical analysis? Why do you think that's important? You're, you're the seminarian, so uh, so you know the, <laughs> the original language is perfectly, right? <laughs> uh, not Definitely not perfectly. I am no expert. Uh, I've, I've taken uh, two semesters of each, <laughs> Hebrew and Greek. Uh, that does not make me an expert. Um, it makes me just enough, know just enough to, to be a little dangerous. Um, but uh, the lexical syntactical analysis, grammatical syntactical analysis, is, it's important because, as we talked about before, words have different meanings. Uh, they can have different meanings. Um, they can have different meanings in different contexts, right? The context of, of how words are used can, can change their meaning. Um, and also, uh, they can have different meanings at different historical period, in different historical periods of time. Uh, I think everybody uh, is, all our listeners are probably familiar with the way that the meaning of words shift over time. Um, slang shit, you know, the meaning of slang shifts uh, and, and other words as well. It just, uh, they, they can come to mean different things at different times. And so uh, that that's why lexical syntactical analysis is important is to take a look at, okay, uh, who is the author of a particular book of scripture? When was it written? Um, and what did the words of those, uh, the words used by the author mean in that particular uh, time in history. Uh, and the way that that is uh, studied is by looking at, so, uh, you know, Paul uses, Paul the Apostle uses words uh, in ways that, and, and and even creates some words, right? Like theopneustos, um, that you don't find anywhere else. Um, but then he uses lots of everyday Koine Greek words, right? That you do find in other contexts, in other Greek writings uh, of that same historical period. And so you can go back and scholars can go back and look at how is this word used uh, in these other uh, writings of the same period to understand uh, what Paul might mean by it. Um, But even then, uh, you have to look at um, the way that Paul uses those same words in other parts of his own writings uh, to understand, is he using a particular word in a way that is idiosyncratic to the way it's used in broader Greek culture? And can you tell that from the way he uses it throughout his writings? So that's, that's why that step is important. Yeah, that's great. Like, I, I don't really have any studying of the original languages, but I watch programs like, or I watch, you know, I watch James White's Dividing Line. I watch, uh, I really like, like watching the Ligonier's uh, teachings uh, series and things like that. And they'll talk about how there's a semantic domain, how that like each word will have a range of possible meanings like you've been talking about. And, and so trying to, it's, it's sad because, I, I see a lot of Christians do it too, not just Latter-day Saints, but I see a lot of Christians do it where they, they see the word somewhere and then they look at Strong's, you know, concordance 
and they'll pick the word that they want to use. They'll be like, well, here's one of 20 different possible meanings. So that's the one that the most fits what I want it to mean. And so that's the one I'm going to use <laughs> rather than, you know, like you said, trying to do the analysis and say, well, here's a possible range of meanings and maybe eliminate a few here and there or make connections to different passages or like you said, the historical cultural context around them to see if he's using it the same way the culture around them used it. Instead, we, we just want to pick the word that fits the, the definition that fits what we wanted to say. And so that's another thing we should not be doing when we're doing that kind of analysis. Uh, let's see. Uh, so what about the theological analysis? Um, so I, I kind of summarized it as taking the context, taking all this analysis and interpreting it in terms of our beliefs. Is that kind of what it means, uh, theological analysis, or is it slightly different? It's, it's more like it's more like looking at um, what the theology was of an author of a book of scripture. Mm, okay. Because not, not all authors. So you and I have different understandings of uh, theology, right? Um, the authors of scriptures, scripture are the same way, right? So I'm going to have to do some compare and compare and contrast here, I think to, to, to make a point. So Latter-day Saint views of how scripture comes to be, are influenced by uh, the way that Joseph Smith produced scripture or the way that Joseph Smith produced his writings, which are accepted by Latter-day Saints to be scripture. <laughs> if I'm going to be uh, speaking clearly from my current perspective. Um, so, you know, whether, whether you're someone who believes that Joseph Smith had plates in front of him and put on a breastplate with some uh, spectacles that were blessed by God to allow him to be a seer and, and read an ancient language that he didn't know personally, uh, or you're someone who believes that Joseph Smith put his seer stone into a hat uh, and put his face into a hat and the, the words that uh, were uh, the analog to what was written on the plates were presented to him uh, in within the hat, and he would then dictate that whatever whatever method you believe Joseph Smith used, uh, that is not the method Christians believe uh, God used to uh, breathe out Scripture to the authors of of the Bible. Um, Christians do not believe that God used uh, the authors of Scripture like a dictaphone, and that He removed their uh, autonomy and they wrote exactly what He wanted them to write. Uh, Christians believe that uh, God used the authors of scripture and their own personalities and their own understandings uh, to breathe out what he wanted to convey. Um, ultimately, it, ultimately, God is the author, but not in a dictaphone sense, if that makes, uh, if that's, if that's uh, understandable. So um, the theological analysis then is taking a look at uh, a, an author of scripture um, and it involves looking at their other writings uh, to understand what they might mean. So uh, it would mean if you're, if you're looking to interpret what Paul is talking about in Romans, uh, you're going to take into account the rest of his theology uh, presented in his other letters, uh, because you might come to a passage in Romans that uh, is a little bit hard to understand. Well, what might Paul mean here? Well, Galatians might help you understand what he's talking about there. So that's that's what you're doing there with the theological analysis. Um, does that make sense? And you would also take into account the Old Testament, right? Because yeah. Paul would have been trained in the Old Testament. 
Okay. Exactly. Yep. Scriptures that came before scriptures that came after. Um, it's, it's the idea that, um, scripture is consistent, right? Because it's, it's breathed out by God. Uh, there is ultimately one author, but it's not done in a dictaphone sense. So you can, you can gather, uh, a better understanding of what Paul might mean or what, uh, Jesus might mean in, in some of the, uh, sayings of Jesus that are recorded in the gospels by looking at the way he used the old Testament. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what you're doing there with theological analysis. Okay, great. Yeah. And so it's important because if, if, unless if Paul's just like bipolar and just a crazy person and he means something in one, one passage of scripture, completely contradictory to what he says elsewhere, um, it's important to, to know why he said, you know, what he says in one place versus another. Sure. We don't we don't believe he's he's bipolar or you know schizophrenic. Right. You know we believe yeah. that when he writes something somewhere, he's consistent with what he writes elsewhere. Yep, and maybe an, maybe an example will help. So uh, Jesus says, um, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." Right? Um, theological analysis of that statement. You're going to ask what what did the um, apostles who heard him say that? What would they have understood? What would the Pharisees have understood him to mean, right? Given what they understand of understood of theology and 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 the revelation of God, um, and the author who records that statement of Jesus uh, clarifies for us, right? He says he was speaking of his body. He was speaking of the temple of his body, right? He gives us that that theological analysis that hey, uh, uh, the uh, the apostles who were traveling around with Jesus as he preached. They didn't understand that at the time. They didn't understand he was setting his face towards Jerusalem for a purpose. Um, and so, you know, would they have understood what he meant at the time? No, but the author who wrote later <laughs> was able to say he was speaking of the temple of his body. So do you think it's possible, and it kind of came up in our discussion with Ben and Darren on the covenants. So do you think it's entirely possible that we can study how someone would have understood what they were writing themselves? but they didn't quite have the clearest or fullest picture of what they were actually writing or, or what they're inspired to write. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think that's definitely a possibility. Yeah. I think, I think that has to do with also with their next question, which talks about how we believe in the dual authorship of scripture, that their scripture is not just written by man, but it's also written by God. And so there may have been things that they wrote that they saw or heard or understood but they didn't understand fully the clearest understanding of what God was trying to convey or was trying to inspire. And we see that too, with like the images and the types and the shadows in the old Testament, the, the animal sacrifices, maybe Moses himself didn't, you know, didn't even understand the fullest extent of what all of the different symbology in the sacrifices and in the Ark of the covenant, what that was pointing to, which was ultimately Christ. So he might, he might not have understood. I mean, we don't really know. But uh, I think there was enough there that he did understand that he was a believer, you know, that he that appointed to Christ and trusting God's promises of the Messiah that that he was saved. Um, so uh, moving on to the next question. So like we've been talking about since the beginning and you, you referenced this passage in Second Timothy 3, 16 through 17. It says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction and for training righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And another passage is uh, 2 Peter 1, 19-21. And Peter says here, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these are kind of proof texts that are used. And, and I know that might seem kind of contradictory to what we've been talking about. Like, oh, you can't just take a passage out of context and, and, uh, <laughs> and use it to prove what you're saying. But, but if you want to go into more, you know, more context and read commentaries, these are basically both affirming the, the God-breathed nature of Scripture, that, that God spoke through these, these prophets and they wrote what was inspired and given to them. So when we look at this fact alone, and we've talked about it a little bit more, but maybe let's go more in depth about why it's important. So how does Scripture being breathed out by God or Theopneustos, as you said earlier, uh, how does that inform how we interpret Scripture versus another book that is not breathed out by God? So what do you think, Paul? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it means that Scripture has... Uh, something to say to us that that is of uh, real importance. Um, you know, you can read other books. You can read Harry Potter. You can read uh, the Lord of the Rings. Um, any other book that's not inspired scripture, and it can be inspiring to you, right? Uh, you can read about uh, the courage of of Sam Gamgee, right, and be uh, inspired by that to. Uh, want to be courageous in, in parts of your life that uh, you may, that may require you to be courageous to stand up and, and do something brave. Um, but scripture comes to us with the uh, idea that it is God breathed. Uh, this is a message that God wants us to have. It shouldn't, it's not just meant to be inspiring to us. Uh, it's not meant to inspire us to eat five pound burritos. It's meant to reveal to us the nature of God his plan for humanity, um, his ultimate victory over evil. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it, the idea that God breathed out this message to the world. Um, uh, it, it definitely informs how we should read it and how we should uh, seek to interpret it and understand it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And to add to what you said, I think it we, when we look at those who view the Bible as just another set of books written by racist or sexist men or whatever, you know, a lot of times modern critical biblical scholars will not try to look at the text with the understanding that it's inspired by God. And that means that, well, this book doesn't have to agree with that book, or this one doesn't have to agree with that one. They can be contradictory. There could be lies. There could be falsehoods. There could be all kinds of just bad ideas, bad teachings in here. And so we don't really have to follow them. We don't really have to believe them. But when we look at it as something that's also inspired by God, we can't really have that understanding, can we? I mean, can we look at, unless if we want to believe that God is also contradictory or, or God could produce lies, you know, if, if God is telling the truth and he says, well, this is what I'm telling you, we're kind of obligated at that point to believe what the book says, that it is true. Now, it doesn't, obviously, it doesn't mean that everything, when we, when Christians say that the Bible is true and that it's the you know, it's our sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the church. We're not saying, yeah, we practice the law of Moses. You know, we're sacrificing lambs and, and doves and grain offerings and stuff like that. That's not what we mean. We, I mean, there is historical uh, or redemptive historical teaching. You know, we, we, we believe that Christ fulfilled a lot of the, the, the requirements of the Mosaic law. But what we're saying is that everything in it is taught is, is true. So, it doesn't mean necessarily we practice everything we do in it. There's a lot of things in there in the book that are, 
you know, sinful. Like, you know, uh, there's examples of people that committed sin against God. That doesn't mean that's, that's not, that's not an example or teaching that we should also do the same. So we have to be careful in how we interpret scripture and not just say, well, I believe it. And so I do everything it says, because if you do that, you could end up in some weird places. But we, but when we read it, we should say, okay, this book is consistent. When God says something in one place, he's going to be true and correct in another place. He's not going to go against what he said elsewhere. And so where, where there might be some potential conflicts or tensions in, in texts where it seems like it seems like it may be contradicting us where it says what it says elsewhere. Maybe it just requires us to dig in deeper, look at the original languages, look at uh, the possibilities of, of how a text may be read or understood. And instead of first coming off with the, with the idea that, Hey, these are just contradictory, you know, the Bible contradicts itself, you know, and move on try to understand it more deeply and see, okay, how could we reconcile these passages? Is it possible that they aren't contradictory and that they can be reconciled? So there's a lot to, to this point that we could spend a lot of time talking about, but did you have any more ideas on that or thoughts on that, Paul? No, I think you did a great job of filling in uh, places where, where I missed. So yeah, really good. All right. Yeah. There's, there's entire sermons that talk about how scripture is God breathed that you can check out on sermon audio. So yeah, there's, we're trying to just get a, like a high level view of, of hermeneutics. So we hope this is helpful to, to those are, who are listening. So uh, in the next section, uh, let's talk about, um, so I, I, I had to throw in my little, uh, you know, my little chips in here because there's, there are different views of her or, or different views of hermeneutics. So I wanted to throw in my chips as in terms of four major principles from specifically reformed hermeneutics. And these are what I learned when I was reading uh, Richard Barcelos is uh, the getting the garden right. He talks about these four principles and how these were four of the major principles that that many of the reformers followed when they were interpreting scripture. There's other rules, but these are kind of the four most fundamental ones. So one of them is that the only infallible interpreter of scripture is the Holy Spirit. There's also the analogy of the scriptures. There's Latin terms for this, and I'm not going to butcher them, so I'll just give you the English equivalent. The second is the analogy of the scriptures, which is where basically you defer to clear passages on the same topic if there's a passage that is less clear. Uh, there's the analogy of faith, uh, where it uh, we, it's the concept or the belief that scripture is consistent and we should examine all of scripture together. And then there's the scope of scripture, which is that scripture is ultimately Christ-centered, so it's Christocentric. So what do you think of these principles, Paul? Do you think these are valuable, or and you, would you agree with them, or would you modify them slightly? Yeah, I think they're very valuable. I don't, um, let's take them one by one. So the only infallible interpreter of scripture is the Holy Spirit. Um, I agree with that 100%, which is why uh, comparison with other interpreters is the last step of hermeneutics. <laughs> because, uh, you know, the goal of, of reading scripture and studying scripture is to allow the Holy Spirit to impress upon you uh, the meaning uh, of scripture in a way that changes your heart um, in a way that, uh, if you were not a Christian leads you to the, uh, heart transplant that makes you one. And if you are a Christian in a way that leads you to, uh, a life of holiness and sanctification and being, uh, cleansed by the Holy spirit, uh, from, from sin. So yeah, the only infallible interpreter of scripture is the Holy spirit. I agree with that. Um, a passage from the Bible that uh, that touches on that uh, is John chapter 16. 
uh, verse 13, uh, this whole passage through there, through this section, Jesus is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit will do uh, once Jesus leaves uh, his disciples and, and ascends to heaven and, and the Holy Spirit descends. Um, and he says in verse 16, uh, or sorry, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Uh, that's verses 13 to 15 of John 16. Um, so, yeah, uh, he will guide you into all truth. The only infallible interpreter of scripture is the Holy Spirit. Um, the analogy of the scriptures uh, defer to clear passages on the same topic if there is a passage that is less clear. Um, I don't disagree with that uh, one whit. Uh, do you have uh, a thought on uh, an example that we could give for our listeners that would that would show that principle? Sure, yeah. So one thing that I always point out is a lot of times when talking with Latter-day Saints, they'll, they'll point to a parable of Jesus to try to use that as the formula for how we are justified or something like that. You know, the, the, you might point to like the parable of the talents and you'll say, well, you know, one person came back with 10 talents, one came back with five, you know, and, and try to use that to back filter and to say, well, you know, there's, there's no such thing as justification. You know, you have, you have to give to Jesus back what he gave you or else you'll be, you know, you'll be like the one who hit him, hit the talents in the floor, in the ground, and then you'll be condemned, you know? So you have to, you have to give exactly what you get back. You know, you can try to use that kind of understanding, but that's not really what it's talking about. And that's not really talking about the topic of justification. So that's why you should defer to a passage like Romans, for example, where Paul is explicitly, it's a didactic passage, specifically chapters one through five. I mean, the whole book, but one through five in particular, he's leading up to, okay, how are we right with God? How are we found righteous? Is it by works or is it by, by faith alone and through grace? And so you should refer to passages like that when you're talking about justification because it's very clear. It's intentionally a, an instructive book on, on the, that very topic of justification. And that's like one of the clearest passages we'll find on the topic of justification. So we should refer to, to defer to passages like that. And then when we understand justification, then we can go back and understand the parables of Jesus and, and other passages and understand, okay, either this is not talking about justification at all, or we have to understand that in light of what Paul has given later to, you know, to, to understand what the full picture of what God is trying to teach us about salvation. So that's kind of just one idea I have off the top of my head. All right, good. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, so the next principle, the analogy of faith, uh, scripture is consistent and we should examine all of scripture together. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's similar to the to theological analysis, right? Uh, the idea being that, uh, like you were saying before, Paul is not um, uh, schizophrenic. He is that the term you use, <laughs> or did you use a different term? <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul's not schizophrenic. Uh, he doesn't mean one thing in one place and another thing in another place, um, and neither does God uh, in breathing out the Scripture. So, um, I yeah, I agree with the analogy of faith. And then finally, uh, the scope of scripture, uh, scripture is Christ centered. Uh, yes. Uh, agree with that 100%. Um, when Jesus walked with, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, um, 
he is said to have opened the scriptures to him or to them uh, and uh, said to them that they, they, uh, they all speak of him. So uh, yeah, the scope of scripture is Christ centered because Christ is God's plan of redemption for, for humanity. So. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, uh, I really liked all these principles and I, I couldn't find any problems with them either. Uh, I, when I was reading this for the first time, I was like, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a no duh. If you think about it, you know, it's kind of like a no duh moment when you're reading, you know, when you're reading a fi- uh, a manual for operating something, it's like, yeah, obviously duh, you're going to, you have to put the electrical cord in the right way in the outlet or else you're going to get electrocuted. But at the same time, a lot of times things aren't quite that obvious and you have to be by explicitly stating them, it, it all clicks and it all makes sense. So it's like, well, yeah, of course, you know, the Holy Spirit is the only infallible interpreter of scripture. But then once you realize that and understand it, you say, oh, okay. So when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and then gives you the understanding of what that passage means, that's the meaning of the passage. So we should take that as what's the correct interpretation and not, and not some other interpretation. And so when you really start to understand these hermeneutical principles and put them in practice, it really starts to open up the scriptures. At least it has for me. Um, I could certainly do better, but you know, at least being conscious of them has really helped me. Um, and these aren't, these aren't, uh, you know, extensive. These aren't the only hermeneutical principles, but these were kind of like the basics that a lot of the reformers agreed, excuse me, agreed upon. And, um, and even, even, um, even nowadays, I think it's still valuable, uh, especially like we've talked about with, with critical scholarship. A lot of these are kind of just been kind of thrown out the window, <laughs> you know, like uh, they'll, they'll see the Old Testament is not Christ centered. It's it's, you know, writings from somebody who had some kind of ideas or some spiritual uh, experience. And then Christianity came later and took these writings and then used that as the backstory for their new religion kind of so but but since we do believe in god and do believe that he inspired all of scripture and not just parts of it then we 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 need to view it as such we need to view it as a consistent book of of inspired writings so do you have anything to add about this uh this part no i don't think so okay it seems like i hope i'm not repeating myself a lot but uh you know sometimes talking about it uh, gets the juices flowing and uh, even if you repeat yourself sometimes it'll kick something in, in the gear that'll you know yeah, I'm the same way. We're good. So we've we've talked about how many times, even if you have the same interpretation of methodologies or principles, that you could you know, several Christians could come to a text of scripture and not understand it completely the same way. So even if they understand the type of literature it is or and what kind of text it is and use the same principles, they still might come to different conclusions. So um, do you have an example of a passage where Christians may interpret it differently? And could you explain why do you think it's interpreted differently? And is this a problem for Christian unity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think uh, maybe James chapter two is a good, good one for me to look at. Um, uh, so let me find the passage. Um, so this is a, this is a common one that, that Latter-day Saints use, um, but, but also uh, some Christians may use as well, depending on their view of how one is saved um, uh, James chapter two, verses, uh, 17, verse 17, 18, um, 19. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. Uh, but someone will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Uh, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son isaac on the altar you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works so um this passage is often thrown up uh to suggest that uh the idea that one is saved by grace alone through faith alone uh, is a false teaching because here you have james clearly uh, teaching against that. So some think, um, but I kept reading, um, because I think that's important. We talked about doing contextual analysis, right? I kept reading because, um, it's important, it's important to read, not just, uh, you know, verse 17, where he says, so also also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead or verse 24, uh, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Um, Latter-day Saints really like verse 24 uh, because they're like, this is the only time that faith alone uh, is the words faith and alone are found next to each other in the Bible. So clearly uh, the idea that you can be saved by grace alone through faith alone is not true. Um, But James is pretty clear, I think, about what he's talking about, um, right? He's talking about someone who claims to be a believer, um, and doesn't have any works. Um, and he's not saying, I don't think that your works save you. Um, he's not saying, Hey, you have to do these works to be saved. He's saying, uh, that if you have true faith, if your heart has been changed, that will be reflected in your works. So if someone is saying I have true faith and their works do not reflect the life of a true believer, then they're not a saved person. Um, And the point that he makes about Abraham, I think is really important because he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Um, He he stresses there the, the kind of the intertwined nature of what we're talking about, right? When you have the heart transplant, when God changes your heart, uh, and you have a change of mind and you repent and you rely f- fully on the grace of God offered through Christ, uh, your life changes, your works change. And, and you know, just, just as Abraham trusted God, right? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, as, uh, as Paul uh, emphasizes from the Old Testament uh, story of Abraham. Um, it's trust and that trust uh, is worked out through through faith, which includes good works, um, the kind of good works that Paul or that James is talking about throughout uh, this chapter, uh, which is uh, the works of, of of love towards one another, right? And so, um, that's one one passage I think of offhand. What do you think of Matthew? Yeah, that's great. Thank you for diving into James chapter two. Yeah, um, the one passage that that immediately comes to mind is the one that caused the ecclesiastical division in the early Reformation, which is uh, John chapter 6, when, uh, oh man, it wasn't the Diet of Worms, or w- which one was it? Uh, I forget uh, I forget the council that they met, but basically Zwingli and uh, Luther met to discuss the topic of the Lord's Supper. They agreed on, you know, multiple points of doctrine, you know, throughout. But then what they got, once they got to the point of the Lord's Supper, and the nature of the real presence in the supper, that's where they had the disagreement. 
and there's various ideas or accounts of what happened, but, you know, there's one account where, you know, Luther just kept pounding on the table over and over again and, and saying the Latin words that uh, the, the priests, the Roman Catholic priests would use to say, this is my body, you know, hoc est corpus meum. And he was just pounding on the table or he wrote it on the table. There's different accounts. So, um, so yeah, what, what does that mean exactly in John chapter six when, um, or, or not John chapter six, sorry. Um, uh, the institution of the Lord's supper, when Jesus said, uh, eat, take, eat, this is, you know, this is my body or take drink. This is my blood of the new covenant. Is he talking about this? Literally, is he talking, saying that his physical body and blood are present in the Lord's supper? Or is he talking about symbolism only that this is symbolic of his body and blood in the supper? Or is he talking about a spiritual presence, which is kind of what uh, Calvin had and Luth and Zwingli had a different kind of spiritual presence. Um, so what is this, what is the nature of the real presence of the Lord's supper? And that, that debate historically was the first real division of Christians in the reformation, you know, when they just couldn't reconcile over that Zwingli and Luther uh, they, they had a separation and, you know, I don't know if they anathematize each other or exactly what, but they just could not reconcile over it. And John Calvin and others tried to have kind of like a middle way where they, you know, tried to reconcile the two sides, but ultimately there wasn't a, a perfect reconciliation that happened. So there, we, we should talk about, we do talk about how there's Christian unity, but at the same time, there is, there has been historical divisions in, in terms of the churches and, and interpretation of this passage. But as a whole, I think if you talk to, I talk to my Lutheran friends who believe in that Jesus's body and blood is physically present in the supper, although it's a sacramental presence, it's not the same as like uh, Roman Catholics believe. Um, or I talk to my Baptist friends who, uh, who are not reformed and who have more of a symbolic view of the Lord's supper or, or a memorial view. Uh, we, we don't, I don't see discussions about saying, well, you're not even a Christian. You're not even a believer over this, this debate, this topic. Um, we do, we do get heated debates sometimes because we feel very passionately about how, you know, our understanding of scripture, but that's not the same as saying, well, you're not even saved. You're not even a Christian. So, uh, we do still have a, a Christian unity behind the gospel and behind Christ and what it means to be, uh, you know, saints in the body of Christ. And despite the fact that we had, do have this, um, uh, disagreement on the Lord's supper. And, you know, sometimes I think, well, I'm, I'm really glad that the denominational lines that exist on earth are not going to extend to heaven. And so we may get there and we may realize, well, actually there was physical presence or no, there wasn't. So, you know, there's just so many um, aspects to theology and doctrine that we, that we can't know perfectly on this side of, you know, of heaven. So there are many things we'll learn on the other side, but I think that's why we should always be testing ourselves by scripture and being consistent in reading scripture, you know, iron sharpens iron. Uh, we should always be willing to, think critically and test what we believe and, and not just uh, say, well, this is what I believe and I'm going to stick to it. Um, certain things in the gospel, you know, in Christ and Christology and theology, we should definitely, you know, put our, you know, hit our nails in, in the sand and never give up on those things uh, like Christ's divinity and, you know, the Trinity. But uh, we, we should be willing to be taught by the word of God and be willing to be molded by it and be shaped by it. So that's one passage that I thought was would be interesting and worthy of bringing up. And I think we might have talked about it in previous episodes as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I like it. Um, yeah. There's, there's definitely passages. Um, you know, I, I talked about uh, James two, uh, another one that, that uh, if you're having a discussion uh, with, with someone who um, kind of has a, a, a faith plus works of you, 
of salvation. Uh, another passage uh, beyond the James 2 uh, passages that, that will often come right out is Philippians 2, um, Philippians 2.12. Uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, and they stop <laughs> dead right there. Uh, and, you know, this, this kind of goes back to uh, that, that principle we were talking about, uh, the, the reformed principles we were talking about earlier, right? This one goes to um, the analogy of, of the scriptures, I think. Um, and, and also the analogy of faith, scripture is consistent, right? So uh, what, if you're going to interpret James 2 uh, to be um, inconsistent with what Paul teaches in, say, Romans, um, then what you have to assume is that uh, James is contradicting Paul. Um, and if you assume that, then you've kind of given up on the principle that the Holy Spirit uh, inspired the writers of Scripture, uh, that, that the writing of Scripture is breathed out by God um, and consistent. So, but looking at Philippians 2, uh, you have to you have to take that contextual step, right? That I did with James too. You have to you have to read beyond just the passage you're talking about, uh, because verse 13, which follows directly on verse 12, uh, imagine that um, <laughs> there weren't verses uh, when Paul wrote uh, his his letter to the Philippians. He didn't intend for them to take uh, just a, a paragraph and and ignore the rest of it. Uh, he makes a point after what he says in verse 12. Um, and actually it's part of the same point. <laughs> uh, so work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That completely changes the way you can understand, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and what the cause of the fear and trembling is because God is working in you which is Paul's point in, in the whole letter of Philippians when you zoom out even further, right? He begins his letter to the Philippians by saying, I believe that uh, God who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion, right? Paul is consistent in that letter and his themes and what he's, what he's discussing and what he's conveying to the Philippians is God is working in you and that should be awe-inspiring to you and probably a little fearsome. <laughs> so, yeah, um, but you, you touched on and, and you asked me the question and I'll, and I'll answer it as well Is where Christians disagree on these kind of things. Is it a problem for Christian unity? Um, you know, we've talked talked before about Ephesians chapter four, um, where Paul writes about, you know, that he gave some prophets, some apostles, some uh, pastors, evangelists, teachers. Uh, why? Paul tells us why God gave that until we come to a unity of the faith. Right. So that passage kind of assumes that we're not yet there. Right. So um, are these passages a problem for Christian unity? I think they can be. Right. Uh, there are times when, like you were saying, there, there, there are certain teachings of Scripture that are so clear uh, and so important uh, to uh, right living. Right. Right thinking leads to right living. Um, and so a right understanding of, of what the Bible teaches leads to right living. Um, and so, uh, there are certain things that are non-negotiable, right? Um, but there are, 
there are things that are uh, secondary issues or doubtful things as, as you know, that's the way that uh, Jeremy uh, Howard uh, kind of puts it in the chart that, that the do theology podcast has. Um, and, and any of, any of the, whether, whether you categorize something as a, as a primary issue, a secondary issue, or a doubtful thing, um, any of those things, Christians can and have, and do make uh, separation issues, right? Um, the secondary issues and the, and the doubtful things definitely should not necessarily be separation issues. Uh, primary things are the non-negotiables, right? If you, if you deny a primary thing, you're, you're not within the Christian faith. Um, and so um, to answer the question, is it a problem for Christian unity? Yeah, it can be because we're, we're humans, we're sinful. Um, uh, some of us like to argue. <laughs> um, so, you know, it can be a problem for Christian unity, but uh, you know, the idea is that we, we talk with each other. Uh, we give each other grace and charity uh, in our discussions. Um, and we work together to, to understand where the other is coming from. Um, we're humble, willing to be taught by the Holy Spirit, uh, willing to understand that certain theological positions that I may hold today may not be what is the appropriate theological position uh, stemming from what God has revealed in scripture. And so I may need to make uh, changes to my theological positions over time. Um, so yeah, it can be a problem for Christian unity. Uh, hopefully uh, we're, we will get to a point where it's not. Um, but uh, I don't think it, um, it's not a problem for, so <laughs> just to, just to put a fine point on this, uh, this statement is that um, Latter-day Saints, uh, they, they view Christian, any, any amount of Christian disunity as uh, the result of apostasy. The church has fallen away. Uh, the church has left the true teachings. And so um, for Latter-day Saints, if they see disunity to them, that that bolsters their belief that they are correct because, oh, there was a great apostasy. Look, the, the church fell apart, lost it. Um, but I don't think that I don't think that follows from uh, the history of of the church or um, or from scripture, as I, as I talked about with Ephesians four, it kind of scripture even assumes that there's going to be some disagreements um, and scripture even presents to us, even presents to us some disagreements in narrative passages, right? Where you have the, the Judaizers um, going and, and, and causing trouble for Paul to the point where he has to go down to Jerusalem and have a talk with, uh, with the Jerusalem council and try to understand what are we, what are we to be teaching the Gentiles about um, which aspects of Judaism are part of this new movement of Christianity, right? So, um, yeah, I've rambled long enough, I think. No, that's all great stuff. Yeah, no, you made a lot of really great points there. And I think it really comes down to, a lot of it comes down to, do we believe scripture is sufficient? And so I think as Protestants, we do believe that it's sufficient as uh, second, or second Nephi, second Timothy three says, you know, it's, it's scripture is God breathed. And, uh, for, you know, it's, it's, uh, and it's useful for, for preaching, for correction, for training, righteousness, all those things. And even though we don't interpret it perfectly, um, I think that that's, 
kind of going back to our topic of principles of hermeneutics that's supposed to try to get past the biases, get past, you know, to try to cut through emotion and all these other things that could lead us to an incorrect interpretation of scripture and try to get at what, what it's trying to say. And I think if we apply that more accurately or more correctly, then I think it would help to get past egos as well. You know, like some, sometimes we get very upset when somebody disagrees with us, but if you can kind of show, Hey, I've done the legwork, we've done this, you know, we looked at this and this is what seems like it, you know, they're trying to say, then it seems like we'll be more willing to accept what they're, what they're wanting to say, rather than just reading the text and saying, well, I think it means this, you're wrong. Mine's right. So putting the legwork in, I think will, will help us to get to that unity of faith that will ultimately uh, only occur perfectly in the, uh, you know, in glory. So, yeah. So the, thank you, Paul, for sharing your thoughts on this topic of hermeneutics might be something we talk about more in the future. Who knows? But since there's so much to talk about, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, just, uh, thank you for referencing my favorite book, second Nephimothy, where Second. Paul, where Paul admonishes Nephimothy not to let his elder brothers, Laman and Lemuel, look down upon him as their younger brother. Oh, man. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, that could be, I don't know if you remember, but there was a mashup that MTV did where the Lincoln Park did a, a collaborative uh, CD with Jay-Z. I was thinking that'd be an interesting collab, you know, Book of Mormon Bible uh, mashup. <laughs> we should get MTV on the phone. <laughs> uh, isn't the Book of Mormon already that? Oh, oh yeah good point <laughs> yeah it's already a collaboration of the bible and uh well, a whole bunch of stuff i guess yep, you could say. <laughs> yep. all right fireflies uh that's a wrap for this topic feel free to share your thoughts in the out of brightness group on facebook is there an aspect of this topic we missed something you'd like to see us discuss in the future please let us know we thank you for tuning into this episode of the outer brightness podcast we'd love to hear from you please visit the Outer Brightness podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page. And we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, flyer flies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God the Word made flesh the risen Son Heaven and Earth will pass away 
church would remain upon this rock 